got to let the Sunday school kids go by. If you get in the aisle, you get run over. <laughs> Micah, chapter 5. Last time I was here, we started Micah chapter 5. I only went through the first three verses. I'd like to read the whole chapter, and then uh, we'll we'll pick it up after the the fourth verse to the end. Micah wrote at the time of, of Isaiah... And he knows that there are terrible times ahead. And he also knows that the people of Israel are going to do terrible things in the days ahead. That is why God is going to put them through what he wants them to go through for his purposes. And Micah chapter 5 is going to cover all of that, but I can't see how it would be possible for anyone to know what he's saying at the time that Micah wrote these things. In the New Testament, we have what they call, it's a mystery. It's something that God said was going to happen, and he wrote about it, he talks about it, but nobody really could understand it because it doesn't make any sense. We don't have anything to connect it to. So let's read chapter 5 and see what it says. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He's, He's talking to the nation of Israel. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Oh no, excuse me. He hath laid siege against us. This is Israel speaking. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon his cheek. Upon the cheek. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. And I told you in the Hebrew that really should be translated from the days of eternity. It's, it's interesting, it's, it's a mixed metaphor. A day is a unit of time that is measurable, but eternity is without limit. And so he says, from the days of eternity. It's almost as if God is mixing the here and now universe that you and I all experience every day with the universe, with the existence that God has that we will one day experience. But we don't yet know. No one out here knows what it means to be infinite. No one out here knows what it means to be outside of time. Verse 3, Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of the brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land and when he shall tread in our palaces. Then shall we rise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod with the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land, and when he treadeth within our borders. And the remnant of Jacob 
shall be in the midst of many people as the dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people, as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he goes through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. Thine hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries, and all thine enemies shall be cut off. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee, and I will destroy thy chariots, and I will cut off thy cities, the cities of thy land, and throw down all their strongholds, and I will cut off witchcraft out of thine hand, and thou shalt have no more soothsayers. Thy graven images also will I cut off, and thy standing images out of the midst of thee, and thou shalt no more worship the work of thine hands. And I will pluck up the groves out of the midst of thee, so will I destroy thy cities, and I will execute vengeance in anger and fury upon the heathen, such as they have not heard. When I read this, just from the words itself, I, I find that it is a very confusing chapter. It seems to make no sense. It seems to be a string of pronouncements by God that don't seem to hold together. We looked at the first three verses last time. They shall smite the judge of Israel upon the rod. He's talking about Israel, how Israel... He says, gather yourself together, Israel. He knows that they are disobeying him. He knows that they are committing great sins against God. They are going after all the gods of all the people all around. They are they are enslaving their own people. They are stealing from one another. The land is corrupt and filled with violence. Sounds very similar to what we see in the world in our own situation. It's almost as if God is taunting them, saying, Gather yourself. Do the best you can. Build up your forces. Get ready for the coming onslaught. And they, that is Israel, they shall smite the judge of Israel with the rod upon the cheek. We know that this is a reference to what they would do to the Lord Jesus Christ in the day that he was crucified. Remember they gathered around him and they they put the crown of thorns on him and they, they got a reed, a stick, and they beat his head with it. That's what this is talking about. This is in Matthew chapter 27. So here we have God talking to them about what's happening 710 years B.C. And then in the next verse, he's talking about what they will do to the Lord Jesus 710, 750 years later. And then he says, But thou, Bethlehem, and remember when the, the wise men came and they said, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? They, they went to Pontus or to uh, Herod. And Herod looks to the wise men of his, of his thing and said, Well, where is he going to be born? And they said, Ah, oh, it's written in Micah that the coming king of Israel, the Messiah, will be born in the town of Bethlehem. And that's what this is referring to. This is referring, this is referring to, to Joseph and Mary, the night that she had to leave up there in Galilee and, uh, you know, up and, and, and come down on all those miles and she's nine months pregnant and she gets to the city in Bethlehem and there's no room for them in the inn. And she says, I'm going to have a child out here in the street, and this is the king of Israel? This is the coming Messiah? And so she ends up having Jesus born in a stable, in a cave, with animals all around. Oh, it sounds so idyllic. And she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. She wrapped him in rags that were useless, worthless pieces of cloth that were good for nothing except cleaning up mess. 
To try to keep him warm, she puts him in the straw. In the filthy straw where oxen slobber and saliva would have been all over the straw. And she she tries to keep this baby who is the king of Israel warm, wrapped in rags. But thou, Bethlehem, ever there will be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. Who's going forth? This, this child that is to be born. It says, he wasn't just born on that day in Bethlehem. No. Who's going forth have been from of old. He was destined before the days of eternity to be born in that stable rejected alone despised misunderstood therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth Verse 3, we went over this last time. There's two passages that are very important to understand here. The first one is given to us back in in Isaiah, but there's also that passage that's in Revelation. You go to Revelation chapter 12. We'll read that in a minute. But in, in, in Isaiah, it talks about before the woman has birth pangs, before she has prevailed, a man-child is born. Who has heard of such a thing? The child is born, and afterwards comes the birth pangs. How is that possible? We go back and we read that passage in Isaiah chapter 66, and we read that, and it's, it's like... Is this a bad translation? Is is it mixed up? What is it talking about? She has a baby, and then later on, she has the pain? We go to Revelation. Let's turn there for a minute. Revelation chapter 12. We have God revealing to John in the book of Revelation what is going to happen in the future. So this this isn't the birth of Jesus that she's talking about. This is something that is in John's future in the first century. In our future. It says here in chapter 12, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. We know this is referenced back to Genesis. Remember when when Joseph has the dream, he says, I had a dream, and he's telling his brothers. Uh, the moon and the stars, and the moon and the sun, and, and the twelve, and you know, he's talking about his brothers and his mother and his father bow down to him. And they got very angry at him. But that's what he's talking about. He's talking about Israel. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. This isn't the same as what we read back in Isaiah. There's going to come a day, and this is what God's telling John here in the book of Revelation, chapter 12. There's going to be a day in the future when Israel will go into its what we call the Great Tribulation period. That period during that last final seven years. She will go through such horrible times as never have ever been for any nation or ever will be, God says. And she, being with child, cried. She's she's about to give birth to... Look what it says. Pain to be delivered, and there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. We know from the book of Daniel, we know from other passages of, of, of Revelation, that this is talking about the revived Roman Empire. The ten nations, the, the ten toes of the, of the image that Daniel sees of iron and clay mingled together. This is the last 
kingdom of the world and out of this kingdom will come the Antichrist and he makes a covenant with Israel and he hates Israel and he will do terrible things in Israel. And it says, And there appeared another wonder in heaven and behold, a great red dragon, that is Lucifer, Satan, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. This is the revived Roman Empire. And his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven because when he is kicked out of heaven by, you read in another place in Revelation, talks about the great conflict between Michael and Satan and his angels. And he loses and he is thrown, cast down to the earth for this seven-year period. And did cast them to the earth and the dragon stood before the woman, before Israel, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child. One. This is a reference back to what we had in Micah. This is a reference to the man-child. Singular. The king of Israel. The one whose coming was from the days of eternity. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God that she should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. This is a reference to what is going to come. And you go back to the book of Isaiah 66 and it says there will be a man child born but then it talks about and when she travails she shall bring forth her children plural in the book of Zechariah there is a passage chapter 9 Zechariah which says And in that day they shall see, look upon him whom they pierced, and they shall mourn for him. And you look at the end of that chapter and it says, And in that day there shall be a fountain opened up to Israel, and they will see him and they will receive him, and an entire nation... All that are alive in Jerusalem and Judah and Israel that day will be born again, it says. We know new birth one at a time. One person here on this day, another person there on that day. And we consider it a miracle. But Zechariah says that in the days to come, at the end of the tribulation period, when they see the king of Israel, the one who was beaten on his face with a rod, the one who was born in a stable in Bethlehem. When they see him return, they will know him, and they will mourn for him, and they will be born again as a nation. Everyone, everyone that is alive of Israel that day will be saved just as we are saved God will save the entire nation of Israel and that's what it says in Isaiah 66 and her children will be born in that day of the travel of Israel so we come back let's go back to Micah Micah chapter 3, and therefore he will give them up. He he gives up Israel for a time. He sets them aside. We studied this. You, last time I was here, you were studying the book of Romans. And you were, I believe, you were even in the book of Romans chapter 11. You read the Romans chapter 11, and it talks about how Paul says, You Gentiles, don't get a big head. Don't get your head swelled. God didn't break off the branches of Israel so that he could graft you in. No, no, no. He has grafted you in so that when 
Israel sees what God has done for you by faith and how much He loves you because you receive Him by faith, they will become jealous and come back to Him. You think it's impossible for God to bring to life the natural branches of the olive tree when He has taken the dead olive, non-olive, wild olive branches and grafted you in? He can do it with His own and He will. That's what it says in the book of Revelation or, or Romans chapter 11. And so when he says he will therefore give them up, he's going to set them aside for a time until the end of the age of the Gentiles occurs. Until the time which she which travaileth hath brought forth. He's going to set Israel aside until the nation of Israel is born again. Then, now this is interesting, and and it's a good thing that we have this little part here, this second part of verse 3. Then the remnant of his brethren. Some might read this and say he's talking about Israel again, but he's not. Who is his brethren. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. You go into into the, the Gospel of Matthew and, and they ask. Jesus says, you are my brothers. Why? Because God has chosen you to be in me by faith. And, G- and, and in the Gospel of John, Jesus even says, and it's not just you, it's not just the eleven disciples, but he says, but all that come after you because of your words, because they will read the Gospels. They will read this story of God's plan of salvation. And Gentiles from all the kingdoms of the world, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, it says will come. And they will become His brethren. So when it talks about and the remnant of His brethren the brethren of Jesus Christ are there by faith in Him as their Savior. It has nothing to do with your genealogy. It has nothing to do with what nation you come from. It has to do with His calling of those that He loves and giving them salvation. And so I as a Gentile stand here before you today as part of this little phrase, I am part of the remnant of his brethren. The remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. Now, not all the children of Israel. It says that us Gentiles that accept Jesus Christ by faith and become his brethren, we don't return to Israel. We return to the Israel that are the true Israel. Again, in the book of Revelation, or the book of Romans, it talks about that. It says they are not all Israel that are of Abraham. For Abraham had, he had Isaac and he also, or uh, Abraham had, yeah, he had, he had Esau and he also had Isaac. We are the children of Israel that belong to God if they are the called, the remnant of God's calling. And they come to Him by faith, not by works and and not by their genealogies. What does it say in in the Gospel of John? It It says that we are His children not because of our works or not because of our genealogy, not by the blood, but by his calling. The Gentiles that accept Jesus Christ, as it says in the book of Romans, we are grafted in to the true olive tree. And so we will return to the children of Israel, the true children of Israel. Those by faith. Verse 4. 
And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide. This is, who is the he that's talking about here? The he that they're talking about is the one that was struck on his face with the rod. The one who was born in the stable in Bethlehem. The one who was from the days of everlasting. That is who the He is. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall stand and feed. He feeds us in the strength of Jehovah, the Lord God. In the majesty of the name of the Lord, His God. And they shall abide. They shall abide. Let's turn to John's Gospel, chapter 15. For Jesus now is going to explain in John's Gospel, chapter 15, what that means back there in Micah, chapter 5, when he says, And they shall abide. Who is the they? The they is those that are his brethren, those that receive him by faith, those that are the saved the sanctified of both Gentiles and Jews alike. And in chapter 15, Jesus has left the Last Supper and he is walking through the city on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows he's going to be killed. And he wants to leave this not just with with the eleven disciples, but he knows that the disciples will write this down. John will write his words down, letter by letter, word by word, so that we this morning may read them and understand what he means by this. I, Jesus says to them, I am the true vine. Isn't that what Paul says in chapter 11? They will be grafted into the tree, the olive tree. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. He is the one that brings these things to pass and gives life. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he, the father, takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges it that it might bring forth more fruit. And now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide. Abide is a it's an interesting word. Some people translate it as like an abode would be a place where you live. But abide means much, much more than that. Abide doesn't mean you're staying with someone or you're living there. To abide means you are dwelling inside of the place where you were destined to dwell by God. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can you, except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, and without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Here is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. This is what is referred to back here in chapter 5 of Micah when we get to this verse 4 and it says, And they shall abide. For now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back the second time. All those that are with him that have died before that are now with him that have gone on before Bob Gaster 
What did he say? He said, oh, I would like to see the last times. Well, he'll see it all right, but not from down here. He's with the Lord Jesus Christ, and so shall he ever be. That's exactly what the Bible says. And he's with him, and he will never leave him. And so is Moses, and so is Daniel, and so is Isaiah, and all the Old Testament saints, because they came to him by faith, just as we come to him by faith. We are his brethren by faith. And so, all those that have gone before, when he comes back to the earth, that's what they're talking about here, when he comes back, he brings captivity with him. He brings all those that are with him back to the earth, it says in the book of Revelation. Coming with ten thousands of his saints, it says. And he will come back to the earth And when he comes to the earth the second time, he shall be great unto the ends of the earth. As long as the earth exists, he will not be despised anymore. He will not be brutalized anymore. He will be the king, the Lord of lords, and king of kings here on the earth with his saints and with all those that love him and come to him and were saved in this great new birth of Israel on the last day. Verse 5. And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land and shall tread in our palaces. Then shall we rise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men, and they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword. That has never happened. Israel has never invaded Assyria. Now, Syria doesn't exist as Assyria today, but if you looked at a map and you understand the culture and the people, what we would call Syria today is a combination of Iraq and Iran. It is not an accident that there is this great animosity between Iran and Israel today. They have said repeatedly that they will wipe Israel off the face of the earth. That is their goal as a nation. And they are taking over Iraq, even as we speak. And so there will come a roar out of that area that is called Assyria here, who will have ultimate hatred for Israel. And he will invade Israel. We'll get back to that in a minute. But first let's look at the first part of verse 5. And this man, who, who is the this man... This man is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who comes back, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who was struck on the face with a reed, the one who was born in Bethlehem. He is the man that is being referred to here, because if you look over a bit, he shall be great unto the ends of the earth. And this man, it doesn't say, it doesn't say God, it says this man for he is a man he is also God we were thinking about that this morning in the breaking of bread how is this possible that this savior that we have is the almighty God and this man shall be the peace it doesn't say he will bring peace it doesn't say that he institutes peace. What does it say? This man is the peace. My peace is not in, in the tranquility of the United States and its economies or its military might or our freedoms. My peace is in a person, is in a man, the man Christ Jesus, who is my God, who is my Savior, 
who loves me more than I can possibly imagine. And I cannot even tell you how much he loves you because it's beyond human words. He shall be the peace. In the New Testament, Jesus, as he's leaving, he tells the disciples there at the last week, he says, I've got to leave you. I must go. For your sake, I must leave you. And they were very upset. And he says, don't worry. I will come again. And I will give you my peace. Not as the world gives, give I to you. I give you my peace from God. Because the peace that Jesus gave to the disciples, the peace that he gives to me, the peace that he gives to all believers is himself. And it's eternal. It has no end. It has no limit. Do we realize it? No. I'm just like you. I fret. I worry. I have things. I say, oh, I didn't do that right. I make mistakes. And I, and I get doubts. And I have fears. Just like every human being. But, in the days of eternity, I have the peace of God living inside of me. What does he say? Remember the word abide when he says, you must abide in me and I abide in you. And so the peace of God is in every believer. Whether they whether they appropriate it, whether they realize it, whether they walk and relax in God and let Him take over. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing out in front of the great fiery furnace, flames coming out, kills the men that took them up to it. Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to burn you to a cinder and you're going to watch the skin peel off your bodies as you shout in agony. And what do they say? Oh, King, our God, if He chooses so, He can save us from the fiery furnace. But if He chooses not to do that, we know this, that this day He will take us out of your hands, whether through life or through death. And so, when they went into the fiery furnace, when we should all be worried and we should all be in great anxiety and we should be in great fear, they were cast into the fiery furnace and what does it say? It says they were walking around in the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar comes over and he looks in and he says, how many men did we throw in there? Ice? And they said, three. And he says, but I see four. And the fourth is like the Son of God. They had the peace of God. It's interesting. You go back to that passage. Now, if it was, <laughs> if we were there, okay? If, if I could take you this morning and, and we were back there, would you leave the fire? I'm sorry, I would stay there. I'm standing there walking around with my Lord. I am walking with the one that loved me so much that he gave himself in that horrible death for me. Why would I want to leave him? I'll stay in the fire. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, Come out! You see, as believers, God leaves us in this world for a purpose. He knows what is coming in the days to come. And every one of us has a responsibility to listen to him, to talk to him in our prayers, to read his word, to listen to the Holy Spirit speaking to us so that when he tells us to go over here, we go over here. When he says, stay here, we stay here. When he says, do this, we do that. He wants us to walk by faith and not just be born again by faith. From faith, what does it say? From faith to faith, the just shall live by faith. 
We are to live by faith because God has saved us by faith. And so, God is asking us to abide in this world and to allow this man to be our peace. And he's saying this to Israel. When the Assyrian invades your country, when he comes in and does terrible things in our future, in the days to come, and it may not be too far in the future. It may be within the lifetime of our children or even us. When he invades this war, the Assyrian, as he's referred to, when he invades Israel and does terrible things in Israel and it seems they have no strength whatsoever against them, he invades a land with unwalled cities, it says. And he does what he chooses to do. And just when it seems like he's about ready to finish Israel off, as he said, the Lord returns. Go back to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. This is a, a, a passage that Isaiah gave prophesying about this king of Assyria. This one that is going to come. But there's actually two prophecies here. There's a prophecy of what is going to happen in their immediate future, right after Isaiah gives this prophecy, when the Assyria king that was back then, Sennacherib, comes into Assyria, into Israel, surrounds the city of Jerusalem, promises to destroy them all, and God kills all of his soldiers in one night. But look what it says. Let's begin reading down here. O Assyrian, verse 5, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hands is mine indignation. They were allowed to come to power. They were allowed to do what they did because God wanted the strength in Assyria. Why? To get the attention of his own people, Israel. And so he allows the Assyrians to come into the land. Verse 12, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. For he saith, by, my, by the strength of my hand have I done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down their inhabitants as a valiant man, and my hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people, as one gathers eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved the wing or opened the mouth or peeped. Then God says this. So the axe boasts itself against him that hews with it? Or shall the soul magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if a rod should shake itself against them that lift it up, or as a staff should lift itself up as if it were no wood? All the way down through verse 16 is historical. It's already happened in prophecy. It's already been accomplished. It happened with Sennacherib. We know that from other portions of Scripture. But from verse 17 on, it is yet to come. It has not yet happened. This is a prophecy from verse 17 is a prophecy about the coming Assyrian and what he will do to Israel and what will happen to him. So now look at this. Verse 17. And the light of Israel shall be for a fire and his holy one. His holy one is the Lord Jesus Christ. And his holy one for a flame. 
It shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. In one day, this coming Holy One of Israel will burn up the Assyrian and his armies. One day. And shall consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body, and and they shall be as when a standard bearer fainteth. And the rest of the trees of his forest, in other words, all the armies, all the powers, all the forces, all the works of the Assyrians' hands, shall be few that a child may write them. In other words, on their hand, one, two, three, four, five. If you go over, there's another passage in Isaiah that talks about how does this all come about in the last days. This is part of it. Part of it is in the beginning of the tribulation period, when the rapture occurs and the, and the believers are taken out of this world, the Antichrist comes to power. And when he comes to power, he makes a covenant with Israel. He promises to Israel that I... I will protect you from the Assyrian. It doesn't call it the Assyrian. It calls it the the great overflowing scourge. This is in Isaiah chapter Isaiah chapter 28. If you go to Isaiah chapter I'm running out of time so I'm going to have to just summarize this. But in Isaiah 28 God is talking about the Jews of that last day. He says, you have made a covenant with death. You've got this promise from one who hates you and is set to destroy you. And you say, you protect us and we'll put ourselves under your protection. We will let you become the war. And this roar of the ten nations, this Antichrist, as it's talked about in the book of Revelation, makes a covenant with the leader of Israel and says, I will keep the Assyrian away from you. I will protect you with my power. And God says, he doesn't protect you and he never will. And the Assyrian does invade the land. And he does take the unwalled cities. And he ravages the people and he takes whatever he wants. Just like it says about that old Assyrian, Sennacherib. And what was in his heart is what is in the heart of this last Assyrian. I have done it by my power. I have done it by my wisdom. I have done it by my strength. And no one can stop me. They won't lift the wing. They won't peep or mutter when I take them. And it appears like he's succeeding when the Antichrist is about to, to do, he can't, he's helpless against this, and at that point, the Lord Jesus stops the Assyrian. How does he do it? It says he will do it just like he did to Egypt. Remember what happened to Egypt on the tenth plague? All the firstborn died in one night. How did he stop the Assyrians the first time? All Sennacherib's troops died in one night. They were just dead in the morning. And he says, this is how I will stop the Assyrian in that last Assyrian. When he comes into the land of Israel, I will stop him as I did Israel or Egypt in a night. Now the Antichrist takes credit for it. But it is not the Antichrist that does it. It's Jesus. So when we come back to the last part of of Micah, it all talks about from verse 6 to the end. He's talking about God saying, I am going to be very angry with these Gentile nations who came and did these horrible things to my children. And I am going to punish them. And I am going to punish them like they have never been punished before. And that's why it says in the last verse, between 6 and 15, And I 
will execute vengeance in anger and in fury upon the heathen such as they have never heard. And this is what is going to happen at the end of the tribulation period. There's many descriptions of how God does this in the book of Revelation. There are other prophecies in the Old Testament. Now, why does God... If you look at this chapter, he goes all the way from from 700 B.C. to the end of the tribulation in one chapter. And it's all focused around one individual. Whether it's the beginning of the chapter or the end of the chapter, it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Where he's born, how he will be treated, how from eternity past he's been planning this and will carry it out, how he is angry at the people that come and hurt his children, and how he has a remnant that he will save. And it's all the work done by Jesus. And this is chapter 5 of the book of Micah. Thank you, Father, for giving us this in scriptures to help us to understand the things that have happened in the past, the things that we read about in the scriptures, and the things that are yet to come. Does it mean that we will be able to avoid them? No. We will have to pass through them. But like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we know that at the end of the day, as they said to Nebuchadnezzar, whether we die in the flames or whether God chooses to save us from the flames, we know this, that he will take us out of your hand and we will have his peace within us in the days to come. I thank you, Lord, for giving us this promise, this confidence to place in you. For you are our beloved Redeemer. And you love us more than we could possibly know. And you have all power to do whatsoever you will. And no one can stop you. In Jesus' name. Amen.